0: Welcome to the Dr. J Show, a production of the Ruth Institute. The Ruth Institute is building an interfaith coalition to defend the family. We believe the best for children is mothers and fathers who cooperate in a lifelong union of love, surrounded by a culture that supports these aspirations. You can count on the Ruth Institute to know what they're talking about, and you can count on Dr. J to help you put your faith into action and make a difference. I'm Father Mark Hodges and here are the headlines. The American College of Pediatricians was joined by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, the Catholic Medical Association, and the Alliance for Therapeutic Choice in urging the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Jerome Adams, to warn against transgender medical interventions for children. Medical intervention for children with gender dysphoria begins with puberty blockers, and is typically followed by the use of toxic, opposite-sex hormones and the surgical removal of breasts and reproductive organs. Perfectly normal, healthy girls as young as 13 have received double mastectomies in this country. Cosmetic plastic surgery then creates and attaches fake, opposite-sex genitalia. Dr. Michelle Cortella, executive director of the American College of Pediatricians, stated, harmful hormonal and surgical interventions are being routinely prescribed to gender dysphoric youth in lieu of ethical psychotherapy, despite the fact that the vast majority will outgrow their gender dysphoria if allowed to progress through natural puberty." American College of Pediatricians President Dr. Quentin Van Meter explained, the grave side effects of transgendering include, but are not limited to, sterility, sexual dysfunction, blood clots, strokes, cardiac disease, osteoporosis, malignancy, and persistently elevated rates of suicide. Children and teens do not have the cognitive capacity to fully comprehend these risks. The joint letter requests that the Surgeon General issue an advisory of the serious and irreversible health risks to children and adolescents from transgender treatment. Relatedly, the Royal College of General Practitioners in England has also issued an unprecedented warning to the public about harmful hormonal and surgical interventions whose effect on minors have not been subjected to long-term study. And in other news, while many governments are kowtowing to the demands of the LGBTQ mob, there are still some leaders worldwide who stand against the politically correct tie. Newly elected Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro announced his plan to revise textbooks in public schools in Brazil to eliminate indoctrinization of homosexuality and indoctrinization of same-sex marriage. Once Bolsonaro took office, his Ministry of Education issued new guidelines for textbook publishers that stop affirming references to gender self-identity ideology. Meanwhile, Brazil's teachers' unions are pushing back against his efforts to reform the nation's education system. And finally, little James Younger is a 7-year-old boy whose gestational carrier and caretaker is fighting to submit him to transgender puberty blockers against what her ex-husband, the boy's father, believes is best for the child. Encouraged by the transgender business Genesis. And Georgulis began telling James from the time he was three years old that he was a girl. She sent James to kindergarten in a dress and insisted that his teachers treat him like a girl and that staff call him Luna. Georgulas dolled James up with makeup, false eyelashes, painted nails, and hair clips. In an initial ruling, Democrat Judge Kim Cooks gave Georgioulas the right to submit Little James to, quote, medical, dental, and surgical treatment involving invasive procedures and psychiatric and psychological treatment. Judge Cooks also ordered Father Jeff Younger to take transgender indoctrination classes. After tremendous public outcry, on October 24th, Judge Cooks allowed the father to participate in joint medical decisions but she slapped a gag order on Jeff forbidding him from speaking to the press and ordered that the supportive website SaveJames.com be shut down. The Ruth Institute founder and president Dr. Jennifer Roback-Morris has been speaking out for James and addressed the case in a special edition of the Dr. J Show found at the website below. This week, we bring in an expert who will help you defend the truth about marriage, family, and human sexuality. And now for Dr. J's featured interview with our special guest, Kevin Wells. Hi, everyone,
1: and welcome to the Dr. J Show. I'm Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, founder and president of the Ruth Institute. The Ruth Institute is a global, nonprofit organization that equips Christians to defend the family. We're an interfaith coalition. We have a very strict policy. We'll talk to anyone and work with anyone who will work with us. We don't care what your faith tradition is. If you're interested in defending the family, we're interested in talking to you. Today we have a very Catholic topic. We're going to be talking about the priests we need. It's about the Catholic Church and the clergy sex abuse crisis, among other things. My guest today is Mr. Kevin Wells. Kevin is a former sports reporter with the Tampa Tribune, where he covered Major League Baseball. His challenging book, The Priests We Need to Save the Church, has been one of the country's most widely talked about Catholic books since it was released a few months ago in August. Kevin's also the author of Burst, A Story of God's Grace When Life Falls Apart. He is now a freelance writer catholic evangelist and he's also president of the monsignor thomas wells society for vocations this is an organization which financially and prayerfully commits itself to promoting strong priests seminarians and practicing the fullness of the catholic faith the society honors his late uncle who was murdered in his rectory in the year 2000. And we'll be talking about Monsignor Wells a little bit later. Kevin's work with youth earned him the Cardinal James Hickey National Figure Award from the Archdiocese of Washington. He lives in Millersville, Maryland, with his wife and three children. He loves baseball, reading, and his backyard fire pit with many men gathered around. That sounds slightly out there. Sir, <laughs> that is the toxic masculinity. We're here. Thank you so much for being on with me, and thank you so much for the book that you wrote, which I wrote, which I purchased in a Kindle edition, so I can't hold it up. Um, but I was very taken with this book, in part because I read an article about it on Crisis Magazine. And that's what led me to the book and I got it and so on. And when I opened it and started it, I was not prepared for the fact that the very first thing in it is the story of your infertility crisis, you and your wife, and the way your uncle, who's a Catholic priest, helped you guys deal with it. Which Can we start with that? Because it's so wonderful on so many levels. That story is so wonderful. So tell us about how Monsignor Wells helped you guys with that.
2: Sure. Uh, well, well, Doctor J, uh, it it really is an honor to be on your show. I just want to get that out of the way. It really is. So, thank you.
1: Oh, you're welcome.
2: Um, you know, he what he did, Jennifer, is is he saved our marriage? Um, my wife and I got married. Whoa. Whoa, hold on.
1: He saved your marriage. Okay, that's cool. I like that. The guy who goes around saving people's marriages. I, I could continue. Tell us how <laughs> I kind of like it, too. Um, yeah.
2: Now, now, I don't think it's embellishing or, or going far afield to say that. But I will say now through God's graces, I think maybe through the sacramental graces of marriage, it could have been salvaged. However, when we got married, uh, we had known prior that we both wanted a very large family. Well, within no time, uh, maybe four to six months, we found out that we were not blessed that way. We would not have children uh, in that capacity. And almost immediately, we fell into sort of a Hatfield-McCoy uh, splintering, where Krista was told by—she was an employee at, a, at the Catholic Church down the road, St. John Vianney—told uh, by her pastor that as long as her conscience was clear— that in vitro fertilization was permissible. Oh, um, you're uh, killing me. Yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty killed too. Knowing knowing that knowing that the role of the priest was specifically to bring us into intimacy with the meaning of the cross, and that these many crucifixions in a marriage or life was meant to draw us into intimacy with the cross, but instead he made it easy for Krista. But what happened was he didn't know that her husband was raised, thank God, in a family of 10 who loved the Catholic faith and understood its tenets and the mystery of the cross. And that well, sometimes God. these devastations weren't meant to make us comfortable by going with the mutual realization, but tr- I guess trusting God's strange purposing or strange providence in this darkness. So,
1: So we were split. So, well, here's where I wanted to chime in with my own story. okay? because I was a lapsed Catholic for about 12 years and I was a career woman and I had it all planned out that I was going to get tenure at a major university. I taught at George Mason, by the way, down not so far from where you are. And my plan was I was going to get tenure and then I was going to have a baby in May and take care of the baby during the summer, put the baby in daycare in September, go right back to to work. That's what all my friends did. Well, then we encountered infertility. My husband and I encountered infertility. And that was the thing that brought me back to the church because it was the first time in my adult life that I couldn't get what I wanted by working harder and by being smart and following all the rules. And so it was a complete crisis. For me, and as you are leading up to here, what you have to do is let go and trust divine providence. Well, I wasn't really so close to God at the moment, you know, that I was really ready to do that. Um, and so, my, I, But this is not about my story, but I'm just, I just want you to know and the, and the listeners to know that the cross of infertility is something I personally take very seriously. Obviously, Kevin Wells takes very seriously, and not that many people will really talk about it. And so I just want everybody to know that when the Ruth Institute bangs the table and says, no way to third-party reproduction, we it's not because we're insensitive to the loss that infertility really represents for people. I mean, I'm deeply aware of it. You're deeply aware of it. So what happened next? How did Monsignor Wells enter this picture? So before I bring Monsignor
2: Wells in and, and his salvific work, the cross of infertility is is... So I've had failed invasive brain surgery. I've had surgeries as an old athlete all over my body. I mean, I just, so, but the cross of infertility is by far the worst pain. Uh, it, it, uh, it kind of always is with you, but, but, um, especially when you're desirous of a large family, um, it, it, it is, it probably stings, especially, but anyway, as far as Monsignor Wells, I had kept Krista, my wife, away from my uncle. I'm going to call him Tommy from here on out. He was an uncle who I loved dearly. He was my dad's brother. So I wanted to keep Krista away from Tommy because I knew it would be two against one. We actually left our settled lives in Florida where we got married. I was a sports writer down there. Moved back to Maryland around my enormous family just to to try and get some comfort in this grief and darkness. But uh, Krista was hell-bent on, on in vitro, and I was hell-bent to adopt. It's not the way to start a marriage, Jennifer. It's <laughs> hell. She was only happy when I walked into another room. It, it, it was, I mean, it was, it was real. And you know, and the, the worst part, Jennifer, is, is she would cry herself to sleep so often, and I couldn't comfort her because I was the enemy. So finally, things were getting out of hand, and, and I called my uncle. A, a power of good in the, uh, in the Archdiocese of Washington for 29 years. And I said, Tommy, we're falling apart. You know what? I, um, I we, we've got to see it. So thank God, Krista actually uh, opened up the passenger door and said, yeah, you know what? It's time to go see him. Cause this is a mess. So we went out there and within no time, about an hour drive out to Germantown, Maryland uh, went on to the rectory of his back deck, uh, it was January 6th, 2000, and he went on to explain the mystery of the cross. Um, now, it was, it was a two-, three-hour conversation, but what I'll do is try and condense it here. Um, he essentially led us to understand that, you know, we all have kind of a cocky human tendency to want to, as you were alluding to, Jennifer, to sort of manip- manipulate things and sort of be uh, God's steward. Uh, You know, it's a cocky tendency within us. Maybe it's a concupiscence. I don't know. But um, Tommy led us to believe that uh, we made ourselves God. If we chose in vitro fertilization, we're basically saying, hey, God, you know what? Um, I know you're all powerful, but we know better than you. So he he opened up the door by letting us understand that we're fallen. He's not. And once he cracked the door open to that, he let us know that, look, you guys are in a cave now. (laughs) You're dark. You want a large family, God has not given you, uh, uh, enabled you the vehicle or the method to get to this large family. So what you need to do right now is surrender everything to him and have faith that you never knew you had, that somehow in this dark cave, rely on him to be the torchlight, that he will be good to you in this darkness. Trust him. I don't know what's going to spin out of this, Kevin. Krista, I don't know what's going to happen. And I know you're mourning about that infant that cannot grow in your womb. And you have that maternal mother bear ferocity to have a child in your womb. But I beg you, do not do it. Give it to God and trust him with your cross. And I promise you, if you do that, you'll be pulled in to an intimacy with him, a relationship with him that you never knew existed because you sent Simon of Cyrene back home And you took on the full burden of the cross. Trust him. So somehow that night, as he sort of let us know what the fiat, the acceptance of a cross is, um, shortly thereafter, Chris and I said, you know what? He spoke a lot of truth tonight. We're going to uh, take this cross of infertility and we're just going to trust him in it and we're going to say, no, we will not be God.
1: That is very beautiful, and there are so many ways we could go with this. Uh, Our topic here is the priests we need. And in fact, that is the priest you guys needed. Was not the priest Krista wanted at that moment, but he was definitely the priest you needed. And I do want to pause on this because we at the Ruth Institute, we deal with the question of children's rights to their own parents. And one thing that happens with third-party reproduction, people buy sperm or they buy an egg, and the the government has a plan that 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 the child will never know that one party that one parent you know that's a complete separation nobody would do this if you thought the other parent would show up on your doorstep and demand parental rights down the road you know i mean so so the the government makes this whole industry possible and when you're when Christa's priest said let your conscience be your guide he, that that was that was a crazy thing to say because you can't even anticipate all the considerations that are going to spin off from this decision that you've made. And so I, I'm in touch with any number of donor conceived persons. And the, some of the things that they tell me are unbelievable. You know, I mean the, the things that people don't normally have to be concerned about that are on their minds, that are on their hearts and what it does to a marriage. Oh my goodness. I mean, this was offered to us. We had this conversation with somebody saying, oh, you know, you could do, you could do a sperm donation, you know. And so I, I literally, I called up this lady and she was, you know, she had two little children. I could hear the children in the background. And, and, uh, and she said, oh, it's great. The kids are wonderful. My husband. And I said, how's your husband? He's, well, he's, you know, he's fun. He loves the kids, but he's still sad because they don't look like him. Every once in a while, he'll say the kids don't look like me. And I thought, I can't do this to my husband. I, ju- I just can't do this to my husband. And the question of w- what happens to the marriages of couples who do this, do you know, Kevin, no one has ever asked that question. So how you can calculate the probabilities and work out in your conscience what's going to be the best outcome. Utilitarianism doesn't even make any sense. You don't even know the questions. You know, you don't even know what you don't know. So, So Tommy's um highly spiritualized answer was the most sensible logical practical thing and the guy down the street telling you whatever do what you feel like basically that was completely impractical
2: yeah it was an abdication of his role to be a father and to be a shepherd you know a shepherd is going to die to save his flock and the hireling as we know You know, he's just going to run the other direction and the sheep are going to die. They're going to get eaten by the ravenous wolves. So essentially this priest sort of gave his liberal, tolerant imprimatur on grave sin within his church that he has taken vows to profess. He said, hey, you know what, Krista, we know how much you love kids and Kevin does too. Go ahead. Go for it. Go for it. As you said, Jennifer, without having the foggiest notion of what would happen in our marriage and 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 it did happen because that's where that's the the line she fell on, mm-hmm. and, and I had to thank God for Monsignor Tom Wells to be a holy priest to be able to speak sensibly, to be to to speak um, you know royally of what the Catholic faith reasonably says about tough subjects like fertility.
1: Uh, so
2: so so I I I I I, I every. I really, every day I, I, I give thanks for that conversation because I think you know what happened two nights later in that rectory.
1: Well, uh, just let's wrap up this infertility part of the story by telling people, what did you guys finally do? Ah, so Krista um, was jarred that night uh,
2: by this uh, omnibus on the cross uh, of, of how we are to lay our, 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 uh, our greatest pains. Our, our greatest darkness is at the foot of the cross. And, and Chris has said, you know what, Kevin? Um, he spoke truth. So um, I, I don't want to play God with God. Uh, I care about my eternal soul enough to know that I can't do that. So we're going to adopt. So we chose adoption. And now we have three beautiful children, and we're, we we couldn't be happier.
1: That's great. Uh, that's really good news. And we w- the way our story ended is that we— uh, I let go completely of of having a baby. You know, I just kind of let go of that whole thing. And I remember walking down the supermarket aisle, the, the the baby food aisle of the supermarket. And you probably know that this is a traumatic thing for an infertile person to do, right? And I remember thinking to myself, I, I could give up babies, but I don't want to give up motherhood. Yeah. See, that was my, that's where I went with it. And so, in, in 1990, we put in paperwork to adopt from Romania. And we were in the first batch of people to, after the Iron Curtain fell, we were among the first batch of people to adopt a child from, from the Eastern Bloc. And so, uh, in April of 1991, we received a two-and-a-half-year-old little boy. And uh, then, six months later, I gave birth to a baby girl. So Irish twins! Irish you know, twins! Well done! You know, I tell people... That is a record even for a Catholic to have two kids <laughs> in six months' time, you know? But, but for me, the, the life-changing thing about that for me and for my husband, uh, we're very nerdy people. Yeah, he, he's, I was completely unprepared for what we had to deal with. My husband, engineer, com- even more unprepared, right? So, But we have these two children three years apart in chronological age, but psychologically kind of the same age. Our, our little boy didn't know his own name at the age of two and a half if you can imagine that, you know, and, and of course we didn't even know that was a problem, we didn't, you know, we didn't know, what do we know, you know, um, but but it, it taught us that children need their parents, children absolutely need their parents, and, you know, we're good parents as adoptive parents, uh, and we, you know, we love him, he's our child, and, and all of that, but the best thing for him would have been if none of that had happened to him, and his mommy and daddy could have taken care of him, you know, that would have been the best thing for him, right? So, is it turned out the gift that God had for me out of infertility was the Ruth Institute and our whole mission that we have over here because that was the thing that was a sequence of events that taught me kids need their parents as a society we are totally tanking this I mean we just have no idea what we're doing by separating sex from babies and babies from marriage and all of that we have no idea what the implications of that and that experience is what set me down the path of becoming an advocate for the family, you know, of, of children having a relationship with their parents, because doggone it, unless something catastrophic happens, that's what they're entitled to, you know. So that was the well, gift from God. That was the gift of infertility for us.
2: Well, it's providence, right? It's, it's exactly. where you are right now is providence. I mean, it's, it could be stated that simply.
1: No, no question about it. No question about it. So let's get back to Monsignor Wells, because he's the priest we need. He's the archetype of the priest that we need at this moment. So tell us what happened in that rectory two nights later. He was murdered.
2: Oh. He was stabbed to death. Um, someone had broken in to that same rectory where Chris and I uh, poured out our hearts that night, two nights earlier. Um, a man had stumbled out of a bar at two in the morning, um, went into the rectory, woke my uncle up, and... Um, in a grotesque fashion that the assistant state attorney said was the most brutal murder she had encountered, um, stabbed him to death, and, and, uh, and one of the greatest priests. And, and I think it's fair to say thousands of people in the Archdiocese of Washington will say this. He was one of the greatest powers for good, one of the greatest priests in the Archdiocese, in the history of the Archdiocese. He was taken out, um, 3,000 people, attended the funeral, Um, 250 priests, deacons choked the church, it was, uh, they shut down roads, thousands knew the power that he was, and uh, he had his life taken after 29 years as a Catholic priest.
1: Did they ever determine the motivation for this man to come in and commit such a brutal murder?
2: Ah, that's where it gets gets very interesting. Um, So, when it first happened, it was just assumed that this homeless tree trimmer had, um, you know, was drunk and high. He was a high on co- cocaine he'd been drinking that night, stabbed him to death. It was just simple, that simple. But as the years unfolded, you know, secrets only stay secret so long and the genie finally came out of the bottle. Um, it was determined that in that rectory of that church, three priests were active in the homosexual lifestyle. Two ended up being credibly accused as molesters, Father Paul Lavin and Father Aaron Cote. A third has disappeared from the priesthood. Um, there's rumors about him that are pretty wretched. Um, so if you ask many people in the D.C. area today, uh, they believe that my uncle is no longer alive because of the homosexual activity that had taken place in that rectory and that possibly the man who murdered him was looking for a trick that night. And there was a new guy in town, Monsignor Wells, who we didn't know about, and uh, a fight ensued, and my uncle was the recipient of the evil that had
1: taken place in that rectory for so many years. So, so the idea being that the guy either was accustomed to going there for sex or had been told about it and had old information, but in any case, the guy broke in and... What you know for a fact is a brutal murder ensued, and you can tell that your uncle was awake and resisting and stuff like that. So that it wasn't just like he came and attacked him when he's asleep. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So
2: so, and also the other, there's another theory uh, that, you know, my uncle was sent by Cardinal James Hickey to his last two parishes. My uncle was um, moved around an awful lot to help sort of troubled parishes. The cardinal used him in that way, and and the, and the cardinal was wise to do that because my uncle was a very Solid, good, joy-filled priest. But the last two parishes that he was sent to, he was sent for the very reason to look into clergy homosexuality. So the last one where he died, um, who knows if he got to the bottom of something? Right. right. And right. and and maybe a hit was put on. So who knows? Fact is, I don't care. He's dead. I do know that something insidious happened that night, and I do re- and I do directly link
1: it to what had gone on in that rectory for so many years. And if I remember correctly from your crisis article, um, there was like a hot tub there and your uncle had that removed like as soon as he got there. The first
2: the first day of his
1: rectory, he went in there,
2: called up a friend and said, come on over to the rectory. Father, what's going on? We're getting rid of the hot tub in the rectory. So they ripped it out.
1: Mm-hmm. So and then Cardinal Hickey was the cardinal. Until I don't know when, but the next person after Cardinal Hickey was McCarrick. Isn't that correct? That's the sequence. So your uncle would have been ordained in what, 1971? Is that what I'm doing correct. the math, going backwards? Correct. Okay. okay. So in our research on clergy sexual abuse, um, you probably know our, our Father Sullins, Father Paul Sullins, um, has done the most thorough sociological analysis of. Uh, the timing and amount of clergy sexual abuse and its correlation with what little we know about homosexuality in the priesthood, which is not much, we don't know very much, but we do have one good survey of it. One of the things that he did um, is, is he, he's, he tracked the accused priests kind of through time. So there, there were two, he would say there are two classes, you might say, of guys, of, of batches of ordinations, where those guys, if you if you follow them aging, they're the ones doing most of the trouble, right? So there's two batches. One of them late sef- late 60s, early 70s, another one in the early 80s. And if you took those two batches away, um, th- th- the thing would be f- far less grievous of a problem. Let's just put it that way. Those guys p- account for a disproportionate amount of it. And so your uncle was ordained right in the middle of that you know, is, is in one of those classes. So it's all the more remarkable what a good priest he was because he was surrounded with, you know, amongst his seminary classmates or peers or confers or whatever we're going to call them. There was a just dis- seems to be now a disproportionate number of them who were seriously problematic. But yeah. of course, nobody talked about that in those days. While your uncle was alive, probably nobody talked about that then.
2: No, no. And and I, I know there's, there's probably... Um, quite a few non-Catholics watching your podcast, Jennifer, but uh, my uncle was drawn to the priesthood because of the Eucharist. Um, He he um, he would not be he would not have chosen that the career of a priest if it wasn't for the Eucharist. So sort of the Eucharist blocked out in his devotion to Mary and also his intense prayer life. And plus, he was the most joyful guy. You line up 100 priests in a row. He's voted not only is he voted most joyful, but he's also voted funniest. So he just dove into souls because the Eucharist his devotion to prayer and his devotion to Mary. So I, I guess when he saw sort of silliness or strainness or a femininity going on in a seminary around he just kind of blew it off and was like, well, you know what? I, I don't know what to do with that. I I guess they're work I guess they're working it out. So 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 he he just kind of went on his merry way and he, and he became a, an excellent priest.
1: So what do you propose as the cure to heal our church?
2: Ah well, um, I contend that uh, my book states it fairly clearly. If our church is going to return to a place of grace, a place that Christ intended it to be 2,000 years ago, it will not come from the Pope, it will not come from bishops, cardinals, theologians, philosophers, Catholic educators, Catholic writers, flashy YouTube videos. What? Bit, yeah. What? No. Only your podcast. Only your okay. podcast.
1: All right, bingo. Uh,
2: but it will come through the day-to-day witness of the faith-filled holy Catholic priest who's willing to die for his flock. Because once the flock senses in their pastor a father up on the altar attuned to their souls, the exact opposite of that priest down at the beach that told my wife it was fine, the exact opposite. Someone that's saying, you know what, Kevin, what you're doing is gravely sinful and it's putting your soul in jeopardy. You know what, get back on the horse and be the father your kids need, et cetera, et cetera. I think that priest on a day-to-day or Sunday to Sunday to Sunday, as a witness to the flock, it will lead to one key word. It will lead to conversion. It converts souls, it converts the laity, the parish. And in piecemeal fashion, it converts the world because this priest is a shepherd willing to die. I, that's what I contend will heal this broken church, is a priest willing to die like John Vianney and all the great reformers throughout the history of our church.
1: So if that's what we need from the clergy, what can the laity do about that? All right. I'm glad you asked.
2: That's a great question. Here's what I believe. And I do not, and Jennifer, I do not believe it's being done um, nearly enough. And, and I kind of relate it back, um, I'll make it analogous to like 1920s Ireland, when uh, you know, Father Flanagan maybe had a pint before Mass, and, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Monaghan said, you know, his Father, he had a good pint, he, he really put it down before Mass today, and, and then his spouse said, well, you can't get on Father Flanagan, he's a good man, he's like the Pope, he's a holy man, don't, don't say a word. Well, Ireland's a pagan country now. Because the lady just kind of sucked it up and Father Flanagan was Father Flanagan. He was like the, the, the Pope. He was a saint. No more. Spain, right, right. France, <clears throat> Italy, Ireland, pagan countries. For the most part, you still got your stragglers. In America, we're still a strong Catholic nation. Strong Christian nation. I believe what Archbishop Fulton Sheen, my hero, said years ago years ago and I love these words and I used to scratch my head when he said these. He said, "Who is going to save the church? Do not look to the bishops, do not look to the priests." He said, "It is up to you the laity to remind priests how to be priests and bishops how to be bishops." So, Jennifer, what I what I believe strongly, if we sniff out in a homily, if we sniff out something that's being done scandalously or or uh the truth is being contracepted because or, or aborted, aborted. <laughs> yes or aborted <laughs> or aborted or <laughs> aborted we sniff it out because of weakness lethargy flat-footedness uh acquiescence to political correctness societal norms it's on me kevin wells it's on me to approach the priest afterwards, whenever, off to the side, never in front of anyone else and say, hey, Father, you know what? I sense greatness in you. There's holiness in you. But you know what? You're not giving it to us. You're not. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out a few things that I sensed today when I heard you, when I prayed for you, because I pray for you all the time, Father. But here's what you said, and I question why you did. Father, can you answer me? Because I do believe, Jennifer, if enough of the lady begin to question, and, and, and this goes for all faiths, begin to question their pastors and their preachers and their associate pastors and whoever, bishops. Charitably, but no nonsense, square up, look them in the eye and ask questions that prick their conscience that there can be change. Because I think there's, I think there's enough sense and reason in these clergy to understand from an intentional member of the lady, maybe who fasts, who who prays three or four times a day? Who tries to be a Christian witness in the world? They say, you know what? This guy's leading me
1: something to to a place that I've forgotten. And you know what? I want to get back on board. Well, I hope there are priests who would react the way that you're saying. And and even if they even if they don't react in the way that you say, uh, putting a little bit of pressure on the guys who aren't doing what they ought to do. There's nothing wrong with that. And and if, if he is a guy who wants to do the right thing, you're stiffening their spines, you know, and, and, and I also try to encourage people, if your priest is doing the right thing, call him up, thank him, send him a note. Lots of clergy have a whole drawer full of letters that people wrote because they're mad at him. Right. But if you can catch them doing something right, especially if it's something seriously right like this, like you're like what you're talking about here, um, as opposed to somebody yelling at them because the parking lot traffic is bad or, you know, I mean, people people pester the clergy about all kind of things that aren't really that important. Um, If we are concerted and intentional about it, uh, we can help move the ball, shall we say, or just kind of. Change the change the terms under which everybody's engaged with with one another, and I, I agree with that. I think that's great. In fact, I I have a very specific suggestion. At the very beginning of this podcast, you you and I had very clear story about priests doing it right and priests doing it wrong, and so I would encourage you, anybody who's watching this podcast, share this podcast with your priest or with your pastor, or with any clergy or religious leader that you feel needs some encouragement for doing the right thing, um, whether it's about the, the sensitive sexual issues or something else, please help them to see that we need them to do the right thing, and we will appreciate it if they do the right thing. So that's a, just, just one more way that people can be doing this.
2: Yeah, I, I um, so yeah, I, I'm William Wallace with blue paint on my face. If my pastor is strong and he's sacrificial... And I sense intentionality. I'm gonna do whatever he wants. And everyone out there, whatever faith you are, if you sense you have a father up there who's who's trying to bring you the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, into your life to make you the, the person you need to be. Yeah, if, if you're not if you're not saying thank you or being gracious or helping them, then you're then you're kind of failing as a Christian. So we all we all sort of get that. But um yeah, I um I do think and 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 Jennifer, you read my book, I think that there are certain Characteristics that a priest um, simply needs to sort of bring into his life, so the Holy Spirit can flood him, so he can be this power. And I and I contend that so many priests, and and, and I count among my friends maybe eight to twelve close priest friends. My brother's a priest. I'm from a family priest. I love priests, but I think the the problem that's plaguing society in our rectories is a bachelorhood mentality has overtaken. Um, America, the world, where priests no longer see their role, and this goes back to Melchizedek. He's, you know, it, 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 it's the priest has always been understood to offer sacrifice. Um, Paul in Hebrews, that's all he wrote about. He wrote about priests sacrificing themselves for the flock, and I do, I do contend that um, God bless them. But many of our priests today, um, you know, they know what time Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy comes on. And uh, they know the quality of their their, their, their cook's meals that night. Um, but maybe what they don't know more is how to try and focus on getting their souls of their flock to heaven through a daily holy hour. Maybe walk in the neighborhood praying a rosary, maybe fasting a day for their parish. Yeah. Because, again, if you're doing these things that God gave us, you're flooded with the Holy Spirit and you become someone who crawled into the skin of Jesus Christ you become Christ to the world because you're filled with him right, and, right. And I think which is where we're, we're all
1: supposed to be in Galatians we're told this is this this is the key to happiness is to have Christ living in me this is this is where we're supposed to be and the and the priest's role is to sacrifice for us I have to tell you you know you're talking em- emphasizing the fatherhood aspect of this thing which is very beautiful and is a huge problem in our in our culture all the way around the crisis of fatherhood and this is or how it's showing up in, in religious life, but women who want to be priests, Kevin, if they understood that they're supposed to be sacrificing themselves, I somehow doubt that they would want to be up on the altar having their guts ripped out, you know, I mean, symbolically or possibly really, I mean, you know, this, this is a job for a man. Sorry, it just is. <laughs> Jennifer, they're gonna lead you away in handcuffs,
2: but I, but I know you, I know you say all this. i right.
1: <laughs> Come get me. <laughs> I, I, I,
2: yeah, it's, it's a, it's a paternal role. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's always been understood that way. You know, Jesus chose twelve uh, apostles, all men, uh, and we can go Wait. on for hours about this. Were they really?
1: Were they really? Or did they Mary just...
2: Magdalene? Mary Magdalene was a friend. He, she wasn't an apostle. I'm just, That's I'm, awesome. gonna, I'm gonna enlighten you to that.
1: What? Oh, <laughs> no I'm kidding. You mean it wasn't random? That the Son of God came down as a man? What? That, like that was a plan? They you're too much.
2: <laughs> you're too. You're too much. You've thought about this a little bit. Uh. <laughs> I, no,
1: uh, it drives you know, me crazy. Honestly, let me say for the record, it drives me crazy. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, I'm done now. Go ahead. It's your, <laughs> no. This is your podcast, honey. You 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 give your message. <laughs> no, no I, I, I look.
2: I um. I, I do. You just identified something. It's kind of funny, Jennifer, what you said is uh, it's rarely talked about with those that scream for women priests, that it is a sacrificial role, that it is a dying to self. Um, it is, it is a, um, you know, let's be honest. Um, men have been soldiers on battlefields for all these years because they're, they, they die. They, they just die. Now, now, Um, as you mentioned, Mary is the greatest disciple. Our blessed mother is the greatest disciple in the history of the church, um, and 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 she might have, she might be the strongest person to ever lived outside of her son, but she always pointed to her son as the true anointed priest. She pointed to him. Go to him. Um, so go to go to go to this God, this man. Um, so I. I um, you know, I don't want to walk down that path of, of the sexes and, and the priesthood, but yeah, it, it was, God made it for man.
1: But I don't, I, I don't think it's an incidental part of our problem, okay? So the, the whole crisis of fatherhood, which I've been analyzing for a long time, this is, a, this is one aspect of it, okay? So if you look at it from the purely cynical political standpoint— the For feminine, so-called feminists, I hate that word, but for for these 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 women who politicized the sex of the body and pitted men against women, that group of people um, ma- making women feel that their interests were somehow automatically in opposition to the interests of men. That group of people, to get the men out of the family was a huge political coup. Uh, And to tell men that they had nothing to say about issues like abortion or divorce or those that those are women's issues. okay? And, you know, most men have gladly left the field and therefore the women and children are left defenseless. Right. So the role of protector and provider is no longer being done inside the little society of the family it's now, you know, the, the state comes in with it, you know, and the state doesn't have my interests in mind the way the father of my children would have my interests in mind or should have the interests of my children in mind. You know, it's a it's a completely different kind of thing. And so what we're seeing in the in the Catholic priesthood, Catholic priesthood is, is significant, even if you're not Catholic people, you know, my non-Catholic <laughs> viewers, part of the reason we think it's so important is precisely because uh, the male, uh, not just male headship inside the family, although that's an element of it too. But, but, but God revealed Himself as a man. He did that for a reason, and and to say that it's optional whether the priest is a man or not means it's optional whether he's a father or a mother, which means it's optional whether there's gendered parenthood or we're all just generic parents, and there's no such thing as a mom and a dad, you know, because everybody's just generic parent. There's no such thing as a generic person. And this has undermined the ability of the priesthood to be its authentic self. And that's one of the things that I really liked about your book, is that it, it has this unabashed masculine quality to it, which is not toxic. There's no toxic masculinity here, it's the opposite. It's heroic masculinity. And that's what we've lost sight of in the culture. So the, your book is very important corrective to all of that. Well, you know, Jennifer, to,
2: just to dovetail that, I, I argue that the, I'll go back to the priesthood, it, there, this anti-fatherhood in the priesthood, this this uh, a fatherlessness is the exact reason, you know, this bachelorhood mentality, a bachelor isn't a father. You know, he's always looking myopically. He's looking inward. A My father God. is always looking outward. So because we are we, as we are as a, you know, just to, we're, we're fatherless, our church is falling apart. It's falling apart in Europe. Uh, thank God for Africa. America, we're hanging in there. But but I, I contend that if bishops and priests understand their fatherhood role, their paternal role in protecting, and guiding, and teaching, in standing up. In preaching, not being afraid to preach on contraception, uh, traditional marriage, uh, something that goes on at the Amazon city, you're not afraid to bring it up as a quizzically saying, "I don't understand this, guys." Let's take it to prayer. As a matter of fact, I want to encourage a forty-hour devotion, a litany. Uh, let's let's talk about the saints because this has been contracepted. The tongue has been contracepted. There's no life in the void, right? There's no life in the void. So, so much of our church has died because priests have
1: chosen not to be fathers. That's, a, that's an amazing thing that you just said. And, I, and I, I, I'm going to have to meditate on it, but I, I'm pretty sure I endorse every word <laughs> <laughs> that you just said. Um, you know, I'd like, to turn, I'd like to turn, if we may, to you. You have kind of a list of things uh that of uh, qualities or activities that the priest should be doing you know the, that the priest we need is not an abstraction you've got some very specific action items could you go through a few of those for us because i think that will be encouraging for people because i think a lot of times when people are um have gone off track and i say this is a person who was at one time a full participant in the sexual revolution you you can't quite see your way back and it's sometimes people look at it and they feel overwhelmed or they or it seems hopeless and and then they become discouraged. So if we have some specific action items uh, that people can entrust themselves to, it can just move people along a little bit. What sure. do you have in mind? And give, give us a few of, the, of your points.
2: OK, well, so what, what we'll do here is it's a heavy load, so I got to shoulder it here. What, what <laughs> I asked ask them to do. There's, it's in this book right here, guys. We <laughs> need to say in the church. So the eight characteristics that I propose, um, I argue of the priest, I argue will um, will make saints uh, more saints in this world. Our church will return to a place of grace. And, and really, it's this. It's four, and it's for. For a priest must receive. He must see from heaven and then he can do the other four. So. Ontologically, a priest must adore the Eucharistic face of Jesus. He's got to spend time. He's got to stick his nose in front of the Eucharist and beg, beg God to feed him with the body, with his own body that he gave us. An hour, an hour a day in adoration for a priest, I think is a prerequisite. I know it's a lot, but that's where the grace has come. Number two, he's got to be devoted to our mother. Our lady, I feel that if he's not devoted to Mary, if he's not pondering her, her ferocious femininity at the foot of the cross, then his priesthood is left unprotected. That maternal protection, that maternal protection is not there.
1: What I want to say about that one, I feel like I can pick a Marian priest out of a lineup. Man, they got something about him. This man, this is a masculine man who loves his mother. He's okay. not a, he's not a mama's boy but he loves his mother. Go ahead.
2: Bingo. Bingo. I want to tell a quick story, Jennifer, about Mary and the priest. And this is, this is one of the most, be- matter of fact, this is, I think, the most beautiful excerpt in my book. A, a holy priest named Monsignor John Essif. He's a mystic. He's an exorcist. And a lot of people believe he'll one day be a canonized saint in the church. He told me, he said, Kevin, um, and he was crying midway through telling me this. He said, here's how I see my priesthood. I see myself at the fourth station of the cross. And, that, and for non-Catholics, that's where Jesus fell for the first time. And Mary is, Mary is with him on the ground as he's already sweating blood. And he's got the crown of thorns. and He's got the lashes. And he's just a mess. He's a beat-up mess. And Mary looks him in the eye. And she says, John, remember his name is Monsignor John Esseth, you get up and you finish this. You undo this sin. And Mary stoops down lifts john up and says go die that is a marian priest that's so, what he heard her say that's she how said he, that. no that's how he sees that's how he sees his priesthood through her eyes through right, that action right. so mary's saying john you die for my son you undo this mess wow. so so uh number number three Ooh. um he's got to be prayerful without prayer the umbilical cord to heaven is cut off and we do not receive his graces we can't plant our vegetables in the backyard and think that jesus is talking to us he doesn't come through us to the wind all the time it comes through devout prayer meditation contemplation wrote prayers or prayers from your but spend that time with god in prayer for a priest it's five times a day Praying the breviary with intentionality. Four, take on a spirit of asceticism, a mortification, whatever it is. A cold shower, pillow with sleeping, reject the cell phone for a day. Um, You know, fast. Fast a Wednesday and a Friday for Good Friday. Just don't eat that day. Um, Okay, do those four. The Holy Spirit floods in, and then you can do these four. Number one, you're going to like this one, Jennifer. Number one, you're a father. You know how to be a father because Christ is within you. Number two, you're available 24-7. Your cell phone is on at 3 in the morning because you anticipate and look forward to an emergency. You're available always for your flock. A shepherd is always going after that lost sheep. He always needs to be there. Next one, a priest has got to preach with the prophetic voice of God. He cannot contracept truth. Too many priests are contracepting truth nowadays. But one who receives, it's Jesus. I need to preach truth. Last one, and this is my favorite one, actually. And and by the way, all, all these came to me through a lot of prayer and rogeries and time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Last one, a priest has got to have a carpe diem mentality. So if he's in the fourth row of a Redskins game or in a drugstore or in the ninth row of a Metro bus, if he senses a soul that might be bound for hell or he senses someone that's struggling, he dives in. He simply does not care. There's no, nothing's made up in his mind. There's nothing. He just knows that he senses, it's called a census fidelium. It rises up and he says, I need to address this person to try and lead them closer to Jesus Christ. So this is no secret. All this has been done down the ages by John Vianney, Philip Neary, Charles Barromeo, Maximilian Kolbe, all the great, my uncle, Tom Wells, all the great pre-saints sort of oblige this, Blueprint of exceptionalism, <laughs> and the church—the church used to be a p- pretty functional uh, organization. Um, Sunday mass attendance is a little bit better than it is today. So uh, that's sort of what I lay out in the book. And, and I'll tell you, I got—I got to tell you this, Jennifer. It's it, people are hungry for the message because it's since it's released on the feast of the Assumption, it's—it's it's on its second printing. It's been one of the most popular Catholic books in the country. Um, so people are hungry. Um, for a, a, a silly member of the laity saying, "Father, I'm begging you, lead me closer to Christ."
1: Yes, and you know the word that keeps coming to my mind as I'm hearing you talk, Kevin, is heroism. You, you're, we're asking our priests to be heroes. The fact is, every little boy wants to grow up to be a hero. I mean, that is, in a sense, that that is that's manliness. I mean, that that's that's. Heroic masculinity—that's what it's supposed to be. That that men will sacrifice themselves for others, and that they um, and that they stand in the breach, and that they protect the community, and that they are—they're not bachelors, right? They're not self-centered, uh, inner-focused uh, bachelors. They're they're there for others, and and I think people want pe- women certainly want to have men be her- heroes, and men need that. They need that in themselves, and and in our gender-confused, sex-confused society. I just think it's really, really important what you're saying. I really appreciate it.
2: Th- thank you, Jennifer. There, there is a symmetry there, and thanks for identifying the heroism nature, because that's what the book is all about. It's becoming a hero for your flock. It's, you know, it's, it's dying
1: for your flock. That's right, that being prepared to. Uh, and, I mean, we, we, don't, we don't send people on suicide missions, but every soldier knows that he may die. And he's ready for it. That's part of the. That's that's part of what it means to be a soldier. That's part of what it means to be a fireman. You may die going into that burning building, but that's that's what you, that is what you signed up for. Yeah. So, can you give our we're coming down to the to the end of our time together, Kevin? Can you give the our viewers some specific actions that they can take? I'm going to tell everybody you need to go buy this book, whether you're Catholic or not. You need to buy this book because it will really help you get a sense of masculine spiritual leadership which I think all of our Christian brothers and sisters would benefit from that aspect of what you're talking about. Um, but so that's my action item for everybody. Um, what else do you have for people for, for our people to do Kevin?
2: We can end on your action item. I like that, but, but yeah. I'll, add on, <laughs> I'll add on. I, um, you know, I, I, I to, I'll, I'll add to that. I, I would like people to add on to your action item to buy this book who hate the Catholic church, who cannot stand us for what, how we presented ourselves to the world for the past maybe 20 years, definitely 2018 with McCarrick and everything else, if you can't stand us and you don't trust us, I don't blame you. This book will identify what the heroic Catholic priests and there's a lot of them, guys what the heroic Catholic priest does day in and day out. I've got friends that are Catholic priests that that are the composite of this book. So if you hate the Catholic Church, please read it so you can understand the reality of who we are. Also, if you're a Protestant and you're kind of scratching your head about the Catholic faith now, read it too because you'll understand a little bit more about what the Catholic faith is and what a priest does. Um, Now as far as the other action items, I'm going to stick with the one we talked about a little earlier, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, I'm going to circle back because he's my hero. I think for too many years, the laity have not voiced what's been in their soul about something that's just not right in their parish, from their priest, something that is heretical or scandalous or just weak, just weak. We've always kind of sat on our hands and not done anything with it. Those times are over. There's too much disillusionment diabolical oppression, weird stuff going on. It's going on. It's been going on in Rome for the past two weeks. It is time to question what's happening. And you always end it by saying, Father, I just want unfiltered truth. I just want to be led closer to Christ so I can lead my kids closer to Christ. My wife, I, it's my obligation to get my wife to heaven, my kids to heaven, I don't need to hear about feeding the poor. I came out of the birth canal knowing I needed to do that. I do a prison ministry. I feed the poor. Stop telling me. I want to feed my soul and other souls. Lead me. Challenge me. Drive me. Compel me. I, I just. I think it's a time for ladies to say, Father, I expect more. Push me. Push us. And if you're not, then I'm going to keep coming. And I'll say it again, Jennifer. I do think. Hopefully, there's enough that won't shut you down. There's enough open minded priests out there that if they hear it enough of the lady, they're going to say, You know what? I need a little conversion to my life and I'm going to step up. And I think that's what Archbishop Fulton Sheen was saying that the, it's up to the laity.
1: And we're all sinners. I'm a huge sinner, 1A sinner right here, but it's up to the laity to speak up. Well, and well, I've been I- beating that drum really since last summer in the whole McCarrick scandal. Basically, a lot of people spend their time saying, "Well, father should do this, and the bishop should do that, and why doesn't the pope do this?" And I want to say, "Well, wait a second. That's their, that's their responsibility. That's their vocation. What's our vocation as lay people?" And in some respects, we have the clergy we deserve because you know we've been we've been kind of coasting, and we've been looking for people to give us an easy way out, and you know. <clears throat> we have some responsibility here and if if all of us or it doesn't even have to be all of us if enough of us demand the truth and ask for the truth and support the truth when we hear it if enough of us do that it will change the the playing field that everybody's operating on even if they don't change their policies and procedures one bit you know and i've been very involved in the in the sex abuse situation talking about it analyzing it talking with victims and survivors and so on and i'm personally convinced that for many people, for most people, the victim is not real. The victim's an abstraction. Whereas, you know, Father Feelgood is our priest and we love him, and he would never do a mean thing like that, right? But the but the suffering of the victim is, you know, is like off in the ozone somewhere. The more real that victim is, the more we will all do what we're supposed to do, whatever that might be in the situation. But if but if you can sort of dismiss it, eh? Yeah, you know, you're going to coast, and we got to stop coasting. There's just no time for it it, it's too late for that. There, it's just, it's just, we just can't keep coasting. We can't keep on like we are. So, so this is a great contribution to our time, Kevin. And, uh, you know, look, if a former sports writer can come up with something that's this helpful, pretty much anybody out there has something they can contribute. And maybe your contribution is going to be, you're going to pick up the phone and thank people, or you're going to pick up the phone and reach out to somebody who's struggling. they there's something for you to do besides whine and complain there i said it we got to stop whining and complaining because there's nothing that doesn't help it doesn't help kevin you've yeah. given us some great action items here and i think every one of those things that you talk about that the priests need to do will kill us either you know we need to be doing those things <laughs> so thank you so much for being with us today kevin and uh, I, once again, I want to encourage everybody to share this particular video podcast with your clergy. Uh, I think they'll be encouraged by it. I think they'll feel supported by it and do buy the book and share it. Thanks so much, Kevin Wells, the priests we need.
2: Jennifer, Thanks. thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
1: You're very welcome. Bye-bye.
0: You've been watching The Dr. J Show, featuring a personal interview with Kevin Wells. Archbishop Fulton Sheen once said, Who is going to save our church? Do not look to the priests. Do not look to the bishops. It is up to you, the laity, to remind our priests to be priests and our bishops to be bishops. now for the most important part of our program, your action item for this week. If we sense our pastor or bishop has been hesitant or silent on issues regarding the church and society, we must write him letters, arrange for meetings with him, or visit his address in order to charitably discuss what we regard as his timidity. If our pastor or priest is preaching on liberal topics and not addressing the need for holiness, prayer, and devotion, it is our duty to speak with candor and clarity about this with him. We encourage you to resolve to do so this week. As a second action item this week, We urge you to spend time each day detaching from media to devote time in silent prayer, scripture reading, or meditation to better hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. In these loud days, the movement of the Spirit will lay dormant within us if we are not fully open to hearing His voice. And that's our action item for this week. You may be seated. And finally, here's Dr. Morse for a word of advice and encouragement.
1: At the top of the list of the victims of the sexual revolution, children of divorce, children of unmarried parents, the reluctantly divorced. Do you know that most divorces take place against the wishes of one party? The heartbroken career woman, donor conceived persons, pornography addicts, post abortive women, and the list goes on. Men, women, and children, everybody has been harmed with the possible exception of a handful of predatory alpha males. And right at the top of the list of the lies of the sexual revolution, kids are resilient. That's the granddaddy of all lies of the sexual revolution. Many people broke up perfectly adequate marriages with that lie in their minds. If they had known how much their children would suffer, surely many of them would have done something different.
0: You've been listening to the Dr. J Show, a production of the Ruth Institute. The Ruth Institute equips Christians to defend the family and build a civilization of love. Check out our website at ruthinstitute.org for helpful resources and support. Join us on Facebook. Our podcasts can also be found online at ruthinstitute.org. I'm Father Mark Hodges, thank you for watching.